gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe, is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp, and Rachel Miller is my co-host, and we're happy that you have joined us. And right now, we're not doing a series. We're kind of hitting some different topics that uh, come in, requested that we talk about. And what we're going to talk about today has been requested before, but even more than that, it's something that I would say at least once a month someone posts in the Theology Gals Facebook group and asks for some good resources and there's not a lot of great resources specifically on this and so we really wanted to talk about it and we're going to talk about the umbrella of protection if you don't know what that is we'll um, definitely be describing what it is where it came from and why it's not biblical so I think we'll start with you, Rachel, just explain what it is for those who are not um, familiar with it. Um, if you haven't seen it, uh, there are uh, images, and they get passed around a lot online, it shows an, a big umbrella or a series of umbrellas, and often over a hand that looks like it's supposed to be, I don't know, it, stylistically it looks like a, a like Jesus hand or something like that, but they're they're everywhere and they're used a lot uh, they make the rounds pretty regularly and they're, they're different a few different versions but basically the idea is that there is this um, umbrella protection is a series of god-given authorities and each of the authorities are over other people in this hierarchy so that as long as everybody stays under the proper authorities and obeying uh, their authorities, then God will protect and care for uh, the people. So, most common the one is talking about is a family one, and so you have Christ at the top, and then under Christ is uh, the husband who's supposed to protect and lead and provide, and then under the husband is the wife, 
and then under the wife is the children, and that is the, the basic family version. There are other versions that are used, then it puts, it talks about church authority, so it puts Christ, then the church authorities are the pastors uh, under Christ, but over the husband who's over the wife, and the children are under that. Um, from, in a, a Q&A thing that you can get, you can look at from um, the Institute in Basic Life Principles, which is Bob Gothard's, or Bill Gothard's group, um, it says that um, to understand umbrellas of protection, it's God-given authorities can be considered umbrellas of protection. By honoring and submitting to authorities, you will receive the privileges of their protection, direction, and accountability. If you resist their instructions and move out from their jurisdictional care, you forfeit your place under their protection and face life's challenges and temptations on your own. Since individuals in authority need to embrace their God-given responsibilities by protecting, leading, and providing for those in their jurisdiction, if an umbrella is torn or broken, it can't provide the protection it was designed to give. In the same way, when leaders fail, the people under their jurisdiction often suffer the consequences along with the leader. And that's a pretty uh, decent summary of the teaching. Uh, there are other applications of it, and it, it pops up um, in a variety of contexts. Um, there's a quote, a Doug Wilson quote from Reforming Marriage, where he says that um, all human cultures are hierarchical. Not everyone has the same amount of talent, brains, beauty, intelligence, or education. The Bible does not require the submission of women to men, but rather of a woman to a man. The submission of a woman to a man, far from making her submissive to other men, protects her from obligations to other men. This provides her with an umbrella of protection that is her husband from other men. So it's, you see that idea, and again, is that there's this level of authority or multi-levels of authority over us um, that function as levels of protection and provision. And it almost seems to have, a, I, I see this more and more, almost a word of faith mm -hmm. element. If you do what you're supposed to do, everything will work out fine. Mm -hmm. you're, you stay under that umbrella, then, um, you know, everything's going to work out. And I've seen sometimes, um, even when... Not specifically this, but in the way, I think it's similar in the way that they uh, portray, like, submission and authority, where the wife is almost blamed um, if the husband isn't being the leader he should. Right, sort of thing. exactly. And, I mean, it is absolutely used as, as a threat, right? It's, it's both a promise and a threat. It's a promise that you'll be protected if you do right and threatened with if you do not stay under the proper authorities, then, you know, you put yourself at risk and then what happens to you is then your fault. Yeah. Well, one thing I've found uh, in discussions in our group and reading some different things online is that a, a lot of people, maybe in ignorance, saw this umbrella, said, okay, well, that looks good. That makes sense to me. You know, Christ is, uh, you know, above us and my husband's above me. So that this makes sense without kind of really thinking about all the implications. Um, Christine Pack has even sent me something she wrote years ago, 2014, for her Sola Sisters blog talking about that, that she saw it and thought, okay, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good with uh, what, you know, I believe and, and whatnot. And, and somebody came to her and said, Christ, you know, she posted 
she writes about it in this blog, somebody came to her and said, Christine, this is, is not biblical. Let me explain why. And so I think there are a lot of people out there that have bought into this. There, there are some that do understand the implications and believe them. But there are also some that maybe don't understand the implications and everything which flows from this umbrella of protection. Right. I mean, it's it's one thing to say that we we as parents have a responsibility to provide for and protect and, um, you know, guide our children, right, that they should be protected under us. That should be one of our goals as parents. Um, it, we, of course, you know, we, we agree that husbands should, um, should be leaders in their home, that they should be sacrificially, um, or sacrificing of themselves to provide and care for their families. Um, you know, those are good things. Those are biblical things. Uh, but this, especially the way it's taught and the way it's done, this umbrella protection is a hierarchical, you know, levels of authority. And it's about authority and submission and, and not so much about, you know, how do we care for those who uh, are placed in our care? How do we look after each other? Right. And there's a lot of places, and I, do, I think about even in your book, I think about conversations we've had about patriarchy, where they may not use this umbrella picture, but they are essentially saying the same thing. We see it all over the place. You do. I mean, some of the language, sometimes you'll see it as um, a, a spiritual covering, right? Or yes. um, spiritual protection is another um, language used, another kind of language used about it. Um, and stepping out from under the appropriate authorities, that language is used a lot. Um, and, and then also, of course, talking about rebellion, uh, when you step out from under your God-given authorities, those are, those are common ways that you'll see it talked about. One of the things that bothers me so much as I was looking at the images is it men and women are not equal in Christ Mm -hmm. here. Right. That's kind of a scary thought to teach that. Well, I mean, even that one and and the one with um, where it puts pastors over husbands, over wives, you know, all Christians have a direct relationship to Christ. And within the church, um, all community members also have a direct relationship to their uh, to your church leadership, right? So that it's direct, um, it's not mediated through, you know, other levels of authority. Um, you know, if if my pastor wants to talk to me about something, he doesn't have to go through my husband to talk to me, right? Or, and even in this case with my my sons as community members, if the elders wanted to uh, disciple my sons, it would be done directly. It would not have to be done you know, through my husband and myself to get to them. You know, it's not, you know, a, a trickle-down disciplining or discipling. And and if you want to know how this plays out in some churches, I have personally heard stories of, um, right from the woman who told me this story, that she had a problem and she went to her pastor and elders and they said, you need to go to your husband and your husband can come to us. So it, like this, it's not just a picture we use. It, there, there are practices that flow from this, you know. So it's not like what Rachel just described. You know, I can call my pastor myself. I don't have to 
um, you know, call my husband. Can you call pastor? You know. Um, and then you have a wife in, in situations I've heard about where the wife is having problems in her marriage and she's told she can't even go to her pastor. You have to go to your husband first and if he agrees that you can go to the pastor, then you can go to the pastor and ask about something or get help. Right. So why why do people use this? And, you know, these what we're talking about here and even what we talked about um, recently with natural theology... Um, some of these things are things that Rachel has talked about in her book. So if you want to dig deeper than we do here, I definitely recommend reading her book if you haven't yet. You know, one of the things that I talk about in my book is about um, some of these teachings and how they are applied. And uh, I'm going to, I'll quote from what I, what I say there is that uh, many believe that God ordained God ordained men to be leaders because women, like Eve, are spiritually weaker than men. Men are like an umbrella of protection for women. So as fathers, husbands, and church leaders, men provide a spiritual covering for women. Uh, If a woman rejects God's design for her protection, then she puts herself at risk. And it's very, very common. um, It's in the quote there, sorry. It's very common for them to use um, Dinah as an example uh, of a woman who, um, you know, went out from under her umbrellas of protection and... Uh, you see what happened to her. So if you aren't familiar with the story, um, when Jacob and his family um, are living in Canaan, she goes out to visit uh, some of the Dinah leaves, the, the, where she and her family are settled, and goes out to visit some of the, the women of the local area. And she ends up being taken, and she's raped, and... So people point to that and say, see, if she had just stayed home under the authority of her, her father and her brothers and the other men, she would have been protected and she would not have been raped. But she put herself at risk. And then as a result, not only did she get herself um, into this situation, but then, of course, her brothers um, respond by attacking these men in the area. And so you know, she is responsible for all of this damage because she stepped outside of the, the proper authorities. Instead of the men that raped her being responsible. <laughs> I'm like, right. I'm like, um, it's, it's interesting to me because, I mean, we can talk about whether or not it was, a, it was wise of her to go out among these people. And, you know, but again, when you, when you, this, it's the same kind of language that, that looks at, oh, well, this woman was raped. Well, how, you know, what was she wearing? Where was she walking? What was yep. she doing that put herself, it's, it's the same idea. You put yourself at risk and then you have to assume, you know, the result. And, you know, that's, it's inappropriate to talk that way about about people who have been harmed um so but it is interesting to me that dinah is is used over and over again it's 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 a very common well just like dinah right don't be like dinah and it, it shows up in lots of the literature that i've read especially um ones warning um young women about um how they should live and what they should do. And it gets used in discussions about whether or not it's appropriate for young women to go away to college, because, you know, if they go away to college, they're not living under their, their parents' house and they are then not under uh, their father's protection where they're living. Um, It gets used about whether or not um, young women can live alone um, after they are adults before they get married uh, or until they get married. There's, there are a lot of applications here. One of the things that we want to talk about, because again, this question comes up a lot. I think a lot of people grew up in this uh, way of thinking. 
and it might not be specifically the umbrella of protection, but similar types way of thinking. And so the, the way of thinking goes that a daughter, a daughter and a son are under the authority of their father, but then um, a son can kind of go off on his own and not be under his father's authority anymore, go off to college, go get a job, get an apartment, these sorts of things. But the daughter remains under her father's authority until she gets married and it's transferred to now the husband's authority. And I, I run into all the time we have gals in the group that will, you know, single gals saying, well, this is what I was taught. So does that mean I can't go get an apartment? Um, that I have to get my father's permission. I, you know, I'm 28 years old. I've never lived away from home. And this is what I was taught. You know, this, somebody might say something like that, you know, do I have to get my father's permission on which job I take and um, whether I get an apartment and these sorts of things. And a, a few things happening there. One of the things that people will use is um, honor your father and mother, but they kind of make it as if honor means obey in all things. And, and that's not, we say children obey your parents, yes. But honor does not mean obey in all things. And maybe you could talk about some of the errors with it, right? Well, yeah, that's where our relationship, we, and, and connected to what we talked about last week about parenting teens, our relationship with our children, and as children, our relationship with our parents changes through different seasons of our lives. So the relationship I have with my parents and honoring them now as they are, you know, retired and, uh, you know, facing health or other challenges and, you know, my responsibility for, for helping them and caring for them is not the same thing as what honoring looked like when I was 12 and living in their house, right? So just like, you know, I would argue that just like um, young men when they reach an age of being on their own, so either they go off to college or they have gotten a job or they're living on their own, and you would say this young man is now uh, an adult on his own, he's responsible for his decisions, and he needs to make wise decisions, he may still be, you know, helping or caring for his parents and certainly listening to them and honoring honoring them and his decisions. Uh, you would not say that that young man was under the authority of his parents anymore. And I would say in the same way, when a young woman is an adult, when she is independent and on her own, she is no longer under the direct authority of her parents, but she would still honor them and um, ho hopefully in living in ways that honor her parents and living and doing things that would respect her parents and um, being willing to help and care for her parents as they need it. And these are all things that are the natural um, changes that, and stages of life and seasons of life that we see that we would expect. Um, and then I don't think that scripturally there is a way of saying that um, women, because they are women, um, are staying under the authority of their parents, especially over their fathers, uh, simply because they haven't gotten married yet. I think this is so important because of how much I know both of us have been in homeschool circles. I don't know how much that you've been mm -hmm. in, involved in some of the groups, but, you know, I find this a lot in some of the homeschool groups that I was part of, you know, even to the point that a, a woman doesn't need to go to college. Um, I mean, I was told by one woman, well, my daughter can have jobs like um, babysitting and cleaning people's houses and stuff like that, that will prepare her for being a wife and you know it's, it's so this is how this is how it plays out 
Um, sometimes it, it also is um, combined with the courtship mm-hmm. movement. So you, you don't go out and meet a nice young man and, you know, and he says, hey, would you like to go to dinner Friday night? Um, if a man has to be interested in you, go to your father, get permission to court you, things like that. So everything ends up being done under this authority of the father until that authority is transferred. To the husband. Um, mm-hmm. Yep, to the husband. You know, which is what's kind of interesting to me. Um, and, and you do see in Scripture, you know, in, especially in the New Testament, about being taking care of the widows in the church. It, it, women often and, and regularly live outlive their husbands. It's a pretty common, uh, not just a, a recent occurrence. Um, and if the, the, the scripture is designed that women are always under the authority of, of some man in her life, right? So from her father to her husband, you know, however you're going to apply this. Why is there no provision there uh, where God says, okay, so now that women are widowed, now they must respect the authority of this person? Right, and of course, you know we're all under the authority um, of our church leaders in the appropriate authority that they have, um, you know, spiritually in our lives, which is, you know, as we talked about in other episodes, is a qualified and limited authority. They can um, counsel you, they can disciple you, they can talk to you about your beliefs and what you should believe and interpret this and how you should, excuse me, how you should interpret scripture. Um, but they don't have the authority like to tell you where you can move or what college you can go to or what job you should take or how you should vote or how you should dress. These are things that are, you know, matters of Christian liberty that are not um, not under the authority in that way. Um, so you have these, you have women who are going to be at some point on their own, whether they are on their own um, out of college uh, or in college or working on their own as an adults, um, if they never marry, if their husbands leave them, or if they're widowed, right? The women, at, most women at some stage in their life will be on their own. And that does not seem to be an unbiblical stage of life where women are somehow left unprotected because they don't have a man protecting them and in authority over them. Uh, we had uh, my friend Jean on the podcast about being single. And Jean is not somebody who said, I think I'll be single my whole life. She just hasn't met a man that's asked her to marry him and just hasn't gotten married. And, and that mm-hmm. happens. And I think that it completely ignores um, our singles, and especially single women. The other thing, too, when you were talking about how they think that women are spiritually weaker, it, it really completely ignores that... There is no male and female in Christ. We are one in Christ. It it ignores that altogether. You know, another thing that you said when you're talking about what's said about women, um, it's okay for them, like the daughters in homeschooling circles, to have certain kinds of jobs, but not others. Um, there are a certain number of people, not just within homeschooling, in other types of um, conservative circles, that would say that uh, it's a waste of resources to send their daughters to college and or even really to educate them much that that daughters don't need you know the higher maths in high school and the sciences because they don't you know they're not going to go on to anything where they would use those right so this idea that 
um, you know, women are um, worth less in, in of less value in educating and training and um, providing for opportunities. Right. It also comes from this these same ideas about you know women being um, needing to be under the authority of men, being spiritually weaker than men. Um, I've also seen it in some of the both the stay-at-home daughters movement, which I think we've talked about before a while back. Yeah, I yeah. That. Mm-hmm. Um, and they talk about you know like both daughters and wives. You know when you're working for um, another business, when you're not working either directly for your husband or in like a family business or in the home. Um, you know, then you've put yourself under the authority of your boss, and that's a, that's you know kind of a bad or looked down upon situation. And and again, I you know all of this this you know hyper emphasis on authority and submission, where everything is always about making sure that the right people are in charge and everyone is submitting to those authorities like they're supposed to be, in order for you know everything to be right and proper, and that God will bless you when you do it right. You know, it's. It is, um, it's a shame in the sense that it overlooks so many other things in Scripture that are important that we should be looking at and discussing and considering how we interact, because it's so focused on keeping everything in the right authorities, authority. Um, but it also is, you know, a, a good example of a prosperity gospel that if we do all the right things, then God is guaranteed to bless us and and protect us. And it's it's just not not the promise that God gives us, right? And that and that's what I want to talk about next is why this isn't biblical. And you know, we I know that Gothard specifically uses the language of hierarchy. And um, somebody had said on on Twitter recently um, that some of the stuff out of complementarianism that. Uh, paints a picture of hierarchy. Uh, he said that they need ESS to make that mm-hmm. work, and I I think that's true. You're going to have a hard time arguing that without ESS. But let's talk about why this idea of hierarchy and this umbrella of protection is not what we see in Scripture. Well, it is interesting that they they want to go, uh, or, or people realize that there's a need to connect this hierarchy with eternal subordination. Um, I think that was one of the the articles that really, like, it was the first time that I felt like it was very blatantly spoken, and it was a review of a uh, complementarian book uh, on the Trinity, or a book on ESS. It it said that if complementarians can prove that there is a hierarchy, that God the Father and God the Son are equal in being, but eternally in a hierarchy of the Father over the Son, then complementarianism wins because um, they can say that men and women are equal in being and worth, but that men are hierarchically over women uh, at the same time. And so this, this equal but subordinate is the, the idea. And so uh, it is interesting to me to see more people noticing that, that that's the the purpose, the goal of appealing to the Trinity. Um, and of course, I would say 
and as I did say at the time, is that you know complementarianism doesn't win by taking that approach. It's if you do damage to the Trinity, it does not help your case about men and women. And of course, that there are many scriptures that we can go to and appeal to that would say that husbands should uh, be be leaders in the home and should serve their wives as Christ served and loved the church, and that wives should submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. And you know, there are good scriptural evidences for that that don't require an appeal to the Trinity that does damage to our orthodox Nicene understanding of the Trinity. And part of the problem, Rachel, is that they make it this um, ontological. Mm-hmm. Um, they so they say that um, that women are ontologically um, subordinate or inferior. submissive and inferior, and men are ontologically leaders. Yep, and 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 then that's what they do when with talking about the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, where we recognize there's a s- authority and submission and in various parts of life, but we don't say all women are ontologically subordinate to all men, and um, and all men have some sort of ontological authority um, over all women, and and then when they do that with the Trinity, it just you know make Jesus ontologically subordinate to the Father, then you don't have um, then you can't confess Nicene Orthodoxy. Right. right. And then Jesus is somehow less God than God the Father because he doesn't have the same authority. Right. And if he's somehow less, then how can he, um, his sacrifice apply for us? Right. He, he must be truly God and truly man. Um, it's, it's essential. Um, and not one that we can just agree to disagree on. It's, this is a essential doctrine. Right. And, and it also makes, and then when we're talking about men and women, mm-hmm. it, it almost makes women less Christian. Mm-hmm. Not, not the same. And we talked, if you didn't hear our episode on um, ontology and natural theology, um, we had that a couple of weeks ago. Check that out. Um, but it's, it's so important to get these right because the implications of some of these things are really dangerous theology that um, that mess with the essential doctrines of the Christian mm-hmm. faith. Well, you know, you're talking about why why these uh, understandings are not biblical. When we get into when you make everything about authority and submission, so it's always about trying to make sure that you know the right hierarchy is is enforced and everybody is in their right place. When that's your focus, you know, and I alluded to this a minute ago, when that's your focus, you you lose sight of the actual focus of the Bible. It's, while Scripture does talk about issues of submitting to proper authorities and um, about leadership and about providing for those who are under your leadership and caring for them, the focus of the Bible is not figuring out who's in charge. It's not figuring out... Um, you know, what what the hierarchy is and, you know, where do you fit in. Um, and the focus of the Bible is about, about Jesus and about his life and death and resurrection and our, um, our salvation through him and being united to him and living for him and 
you know, in being built together, built up together as the church, men and women together as the body of Christ. And this is scripture. That's what it's about. And so, you know, when when so much of our time and our effort is focused on this one aspect, you know, authority and submission, then we lose sight of so many other important and very key aspects of scripture. And, you know, we are in danger of of losing sight of what the actual gospel is and what um, our purpose is in life and in serving Christ. That's so important, Rachel. And you and I have talked about how, um, well, as as one person said to me, I won't say who said it, but it was a man. (laughs) And he said, "Um, you get the idea from these guys that the whole theme of scripture is complementarianism. Um, and and then what en- what has ended up happening is that, and we've talked about this before, but they've elevated this to a first tier doctrine, and then they've they're basically ignoring or downplaying actual first tier doctrines like ESS. So a lot of dangerous implications. Absolutely, um, you know that's you know one of the the side aspects of you know, this umbrella of protection. Um, is putting husbands and fathers, um, pastors as well, when you look at the two different versions that we talked about, um, in between women and Christ. And it's it's extremely dangerous to put uh, levels in between uh, Christians and Christ, how, whatever levels you put in there. And this is where, um, you know, it's part of the Reformation when they talked about um, you know, that the church was not in place of as a mediator between believers and Christ, and putting husbands there is 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 equally inappropriate. Not that husbands shouldn't, uh, you know, care for their wives and their families, and, and it's not that they shouldn't, you know, you know, want to teach their children um, the word and. Uh, encourage their wives um, in their their spiritual growth, but when you when you say to a husband that you are um, you're standing here as a priest between Christ and your family, that you're putting a weight on men that, that they should not have to bear. It's it's unfair. Um, you know, men, good men, right? Uh, and you know, Colleen and I both we love our husbands very much, but if we look to our husbands to be Christ for us. Um, we are asking way too much from them. Um, in uh, in my book, I talk a little little bit about this idea of husbands as priests for the family, and in particular, this is when I say in talking about the the mediator role. Um, so, that mediator is a role that only Christ Himself could can or should hold. So every believer, male and female, young or old, has direct access to God through Christ. And this is important, you know, for me and Colleen, we talked about our in parenting with our children. You know, we have we recognize the fact that our children who have professed faith have a relationship directly with Christ that they are responsible for, uh, that is not mediated through us in any way. As much as you know, we wish that we could work in our our children's lives and and help them and make them become believers. We can't do that. That is the work of the Spirit. But believing women um, 
have the Holy Spirit working actively in their lives to sanctify them just as believing men do. And we do not need any other mediators or priests to mediate for us. Um, Women are responsible for their relationship with God and should pursue the ordinary means of grace for themselves. This includes reading the Bible, praying, and listening to the preached word. Um, Believing women should have a direct relationship with their church leadership that provides them with pastoral care and discipling. And of course, men should encourage their families to pursue God through the ordinary means of grace. They should model and promote holiness in their lives and the lives of their families. But while God uses every part of our lives, including our relationships with others in the process of our sanctification, men can't do what only God can do, and we should not be asking or expecting them to. One of the images that Rachel even found with the umbrella of protection says, under the Christ umbrella, authority to forgive sins passed down to the pastors. And if you've ever heard the language um, that some people use, it was used at a Reformed Baptist conference in the last couple of years, where somebody said that, where this pastor said, a husband is prophet, priest, and king to his wife. And no, he isn't. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king to the wife. Jesus is prophet, priest, king to the, to the husband. He's prophet, priest, and king to all of us in Christ. And makes me think so much. You mentioned the Reformation. You know, one of the things we got rid of um, in the Reformation is, you know, that priest being mediator between the God and between God and man. Um, the priest being the one to forgive sins. Mm-hmm. We have direct access to Christ. Looking at this this week has just made me really reflect on all of the different dangerous implications from this. Going back to our discussion with parenting, you know, last week, if we take the idea that parents are between their children, uh, Christ and their children, then we, we think that we have some, are responsible for, you know, making our, our children Christians. And, you know, our children have to take their own, take responsibility for their relationship, especially, you know, we should be encouraging them to, especially for those of us who've raised our children in the church and we have baptized our children as infants, you know, we should be encouraging our children to recognize that they have to take ownership. This is up to them. This is not a relationship mediated through us. You know, they have their own relationship to God and it's direct through Christ. Um. I have a few resources. Um, there, oh, there is one more thing I want to say. Actually, might pull it up. Um, I this week I read some. I have some resources that from people that kind of grew up in this and and came out. There's actually an article on the Gospel Coalition called "Growing Up Gothard," and I just want to read one little part because it points out kind of what happens. And it's interesting to hear the perspectives of people that grew up in this. Um, he says one of the foundational truths of ATI was the umbrella of protection in a family structure the father was the umbrella that protected his wife and children from Satan's attacks and God's judgments if you stepped outside of that authority you would face temptations and wrath the umbrella came without an expiration date as a teenager the gradual increase of responsibility would not coincide with a gradual increase in decision making a young man would be eligible to step out from under 
the umbrella of protection only when he married. And I've heard different versions. Mm-hmm. This is what he's taught. Some people say that the man can at 18, but a young woman would only transfer from the um, father's umbrella to a husband's. This authoritarian approach forced the fear of both God and parents to become the main reason for obedience. That was the part I wanted to get mm-hmm. to. Because um, that, that I think is fascinating too. You end up even with... Um, with a wrong understanding of law and gospel and justification and sanctification and the third use of the law, why we obey. So it puts people just under, and I've seen this actually, even myself with some young women, afraid to step out, you know, they're grown, they're 32 years old and afraid, they've been kind of programmed to be afraid to step outside of their father's umbrella of protection because then all of life is going to fall apart. Yeah, actually, one thing I was going to say, I thought of earlier when we were talking about, you know, the courtship and such. When um, when Matt and I met, uh, I was I had graduated from the university. I was working for the university full time, living on my own, and um, Matt was in grad school, so we were both independent at that point. And when we got serious about getting married, he'd been around. He'd met my parents and. Um, you know, he went to talk to my dad, and my dad said, "You know, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not here to give you, um, you know, permission to marry my daughter. Uh, I'm certainly glad to give you my blessing." He said, "But you know, I raised my daughter, and I've given her, um, you know, good guidelines, and I trust her to make a good decision. And if she says that you're the one that she wants to marry, then I trust her." And you know. You know, hearing the conversation back as Matt and my dad talked to me about it, it was it was encouraging, you know. And I want, you know, the same, you know, as you were raising boys, I want the same for my children. I want to raise them to make their decisions and trust that they are going to make them well, but it's up to them and they have their own, as adults, they have to make their own decisions and be responsible for them. And that reminds me of early, early in marriage, we knew some people in fact, that bought into the Gothard stuff and patriarchy. They were into other big patriarchy names. And these husbands ruled for sure. Um, And, you know, those wives didn't do anything without um, permission and stuff like that. And I said to my husband, how come you're not like that with me? And he looked at me and said, because I trust you. And that kind of that conversation really opened my eyes to kind of understanding the difference. But, but when you view women as spiritually weak, more easily deceived, and some of these things that we can't hear coming out of patriarchy, then yeah, you got to make sure to protect her because she's going to make stupid decisions. You got to keep her from that. And she's not trustworthy is basically um, what it comes across as. Which gets back to, you know, what kind of, of companionship, what kind of friendship and relationship can you have? It's, it's not the relationship of equals who, you know, love and support and sacrifice for each other. You know. We both, Rachel and I, believe what scripture says is true, that our our husbands, you know, our servant leaders, we know Ephesians 5, what Ephesians 5 says, and um, that we submit to our husbands, and, and those things are all true. But people take those ideas and they twist them to create something that is not biblical. 
and has all sorts of theological problems. It's important that anything that we believe that we make sure it's consistent with scripture. And I don't believe that this is. So hopefully that was helpful. We wanted to have a resource when this question comes up to point to people and say, okay, here, you know, here's, here's a good resource. But even more than what we've said here, I think it's important to know scripture so that you can be discerning about things like this. Um, so you can look and say, hey, is that really biblical? Is that really what scripture what scripture teaches. I know both Rachel and I, that's always our desire that we would believe the things that are found in the pages of scripture. So I want to mention a few things um, before we go specifically what I am including in this week's resources. First of all, I've got Rachel's book. And first of all, I have Rachel's book. And uh, the reason I'm linking this again is everything that we have talked about here she she discusses in far more detail so if you haven't read it um, pick that up you can get it on kindle or you can get the um, actual copy i'm also linking i've mentioned earlier in the episode about christine pack and that um that she had written about the umbrella of protection the reason i'm linking her uh, Sola Sisters blog on the subject is she has put together probably the m- most extensive set of resources on the umbrella of protection. So there's a lot in there, people that came out of Gothard and some primary sources and just quite a bit she has there. Then I also wanted to mention again uh, the Relight app. It's a free reform theology and Bible study web app. You know, there are several things that I use regularly in my studies and my research when I'm talking about different things. Um, one of those would be the Westminster Standards. The other one would be uh, John Calvin's commentary. I find his commentary very, very helpful. Now, I've always used another website and I don't really love the way that other website is set up. So I wanted to I was playing around this week on the Relight app with the John on John Calvin's commentary, and I love the way it's set up. So I can search any passage and it's going to come right up, or I can even do one of the books of the Bible, but it's just so much more accessible than what I used before. And then I also, you know that online you can find lots of um, places for the for the Westminster Standards, but I especially like this, and I'm just gonna explain just maybe one example. This has just been really helpful for me in my own studies. So if I go to question, on the shorter catechism, if I go to question one, it's right there, but um, the proof text, uh, you can click the little light bulb on the left and you can see the proof text, then you can click each one of those and it comes up. It doesn't open it up on another page or another window as is the case on uh, some of the different apps. So I'm going to definitely be using this app a lot more with my research. I just, I think it's more accessible and set up better when I'm trying to find this and that really quickly. And I know they're going to be adding more. I'm going to ask, um, the couple that does it, what more they'll be adding or if they're taking any suggestions or anything. Because I think long term, they're really trying to make this something a lot easier to use 
and a lot more accessible and I'm actually quite impressed with it. So check that out too and we will see you next week.